Welcome to a special edition of the Angler Podcast, where we are joined by Sarah Jaffe, labor journalist and author of the book Work Won't Love You Back, which examines our relationship to work from a number of different industries, including art, which is what I'd love to talk to you about today. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Hi, thank you for having me. So your book was published in 2021 and covers so many professions from teaching to professional sports to the arts. Uh, and given the Writers Guild of America strike and the SAG-AFTRA strike that have been now ongoing for over 120 and 40-something days, respectively, uh, this book seems particularly resonant now. Uh, quickly wondering, <laughs> what was the inspiration for this book? Why does it feel so resonant today? You know, it's actually kind of interesting because I've been a labor journalist for a long time now, um, almost 15 years full time and thinking about it for a while longer. And some of this book also draws on my experience working in restaurants and things like that before I became a full-time journalist, things that I sort of experienced in my own life. And then I, when I became a reporter, started seeing them everywhere. Um, so the kind of expectation that you're going to smile all day long at your job and you're going to be smiley and fun and happy and you love it, um, didn't go away when I was no longer working for tips. And then I talked to, and relevant since we're talking about the writer's strike, um, one of the early labor stories that I did was about um, the Writers Guild, in this case, the Writers Guild of America East was organizing um, reality TV producers and writers and all of the people that they pretend they don't have on reality TV, right? Mm. Um, who were at that point, and many of them still are non-union, right? And like one of the reasons that you have this proliferating genre of um, reality and sort of non-fiction, so supposedly non-scripted TV is the last writer's strike, right? Mm -hmm. It was a cheaper, yeah. easier form of, you know, entertainment to crank out when there was a writer's strike. Um, and you could pretend again that you weren't hiring writers and you weren't hiring the same kind of producers. And so you could get essentially a new kind of cheaper labor. Um, so I wrote about this work and I remember talking to this woman who was a producer um, and she was like, you know, this is my dream job. I'm so excited to work in TV. This is great. But I work 14 hour days and sometimes I'm in the editing studio all night and I'm exhausted and I never get a day off and I don't make very much money. And these are short term gigs, like six, eight months, something like that. And they, you know, anytime you complain, they basically tell you, well, there are 200 people outside the door who will take your job tomorrow and not complain. Um, and I was like, uh-huh. And so that story ended up not making it into the book because um, I had to limit myself because the book could have been three times as long as it was and still had plenty of interesting examples. Um, but I thought about that story a lot, right? Because it was one of those moments that it was like, right, you sound like me. And also I would hear versions of that same story from people in very different industries. And you talk a lot about the labor of love. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think a lot of us get caught up in when we're telling ourselves or who any, anyone who's seen The Devil Wears Prada. Right. Like where she goes, I love my job. I love my job. <laughs> that, I love my job. <laughs> the Devil Wears Prada is a whole movie on like my thesis. Right. It's like actually <laughs> don't let your boss run your life. It's a terrible idea, even if your boss is um, Anna Wintour. I mean, Miranda Priestly. <laughs> you know, I never thought about The Devil Wears Prada as being a labor movie before. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it is, right? It's it's a movie about, like, female presentation under capitalism. And it's a movie about crappy working conditions and, like, the ways you can get sucked into crappy working conditions. 
And the funniest bit about that is it's not her dream job, right? Her dream job is like working at the New Yorker, which by the way, has had a huge, long, prolonged labor fight there, you know, which they finally got a contract not all that long ago, considering how long their union drive was ongoing. Um, But you know, what's her name? I don't remember Anne Hathaway's character's name, but like, you know, she doesn't want to work in fashion. She's bored by fashion. She thinks she's too good for fashion. Then she sort of gets schooled about the color of that blue sweater. God, I haven't watched this movie in so long. Why do I remember it? Yes, the cerulean Uh, speech. Right, exactly. The cerulean (laughs) sweater. And- Which is basically like a labor cycle uh, monologue. It's, it's, a, it's an interestingly sort of, right. It's also like an interestingly feminist thing, which is like, you think that this is stupid girly stuff and you think you're too mm. good for it because it's girly stuff. And actually girly stuff is also serious. And girly stuff is a multi-billion dollar industry that Anna Wintour, I mean, Miranda Priestly sits the head of, right? Mm. <laughs> anyway, I should have written something about the devil wears Prada at some point. Why have I not? <laughs> um, but right. It, it, Somebody it, needs to now. I think you have to. But when you look at stories like the New Yorker union fight, right, um, yeah. you look at people who, again, who are really, this is their dream job, right? They want, mm-hmm. look, I, I would do a lot of things for a New Yorker byline. Mostly what I have done is support the New Yorker writers and editors while they were organizing. Um, but, you know, these are these are like the dream places to write for. And even someone like me with two and a half books under her belt um, doesn't get called to write for them. So of course, when you have that job, it's really hard to risk it by saying like, hey, also I haven't had a raise in two years and you gave that guy over there and I say guy intentionally a raise, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that was so interesting about a lot of the digital media and legacy print media organizing is that they're specifically sort of taking on issues of race and gender and equity and saying like pay Mm -hmm. once you get people in the door is bad, but also like the pay is so low that you basically have to be rich to take a job here in the first place. Like all of these things um, that come up when you're talking. Which is not so dissimilar from being a screenwriter or TV writer or an actor because these jobs historically uh, are labors of love, quote unquote, at the beginning where you do that labor for free or for very low pay in order to get that quote unquote exposure, which is the payment. Right. And there's this sense that you know, when when you do make it somewhere, um, you're doing it for the love of the art or the love of the writing, um, you know, right. similar to working at a job at The New Yorker or working for Vogue or, you know, being an actor. Um, right. But tell us about tell us about this affirmation trap, as as yeah. you call it in, in the book. Yeah, so that that term I stole from Joshua Clover um, in his book, Riot Strike Riot. He sort of talks about the moment of the change from the sort of industrial economy, right, um, where workers would go on strike to make demands often, you know, for many years of labor history for shorter working hours for quite a long time. And then you get to the point where capital figures out that they can, like, close the factory in Lordstown, Detroit, Indianapolis, open it in Mexico, China, Bangladesh, and exploit the people there um, much more efficiently. And that is to say, pay them a lot less money and treat them worse. And so what you get now is sort of workers in the global north, in the US, I'm I'm in London right now, so in countries like Britain as well, um, begging to keep the factories open. And so making concession after concession after concession, and this is what Clover calls the affirmation trap. And the argument that I make about that um, is that it's sort of one short step from the affirmation trap to the labor, labor of love, right? When you are accustomed to begging for your job and being grateful for your job when you are put in this position, right? Where your, your relation to your employer is one of eternal gratitude 
just forgetting to have a job when they're job creators, right? That thing that came out of, I think the 2012 election, right? Mitt Romney was a job creator or something. Mitt Romney was technically a job destroyer because what he was, was a private equity guy who specialized in buying those companies, breaking them up and selling them off for parts and shipping all the jobs to Bangladesh or wherever else that they could, again, super exploit workers who don't look like the white guys that everybody thinks of as factory workers. Um, So (laughs) anyway, what you get in the seventies, right, is the slow destruction of industrial labor that is still going on today. Um, we're still seeing this now. Biden is sort of promising to at least partially reverse it by investing public money into private firms that are going to do green development. Um, a friend of mine, Luis Feliz Leon, has a piece that I need to read that I have not read yet on the um, battery plant that is in Lordstown that is not replacing the old auto factory in Lordstown, which closed in 2019, but is supposedly like the, you know, ooh, these are going to be the new jobs that like, you know, the guys who had the factory jobs can get these, except are the conditions going to be good? What are the new and exciting hazards of making lithium batteries and things like that? Fuel cells, all that stuff. I know nothing about the technology of it, other than it's made with rare earth minerals that are being mined in the same horrible ways that coal was being mined 100 years ago. And um, it's probably going to keep killing us all. So you have this like, steady process of deindustrialization. What comes alongside that is that other jobs start taking up more and more of the economy. Um, a lot of that is healthcare work, service work. Um, the gig economy is a new fun one these days. And the gig economy relates again to talking about the actors and writers strike because like a lot of people who are working those dream jobs are also driving for Uber on the weekends, right? You've been covering this more closely than I have by a long shot this summer. I've been writing so many side hustles. But like, right, when you think about the fact that like whatever percentage it is of actors in SAG-AFTRA don't qualify for SAG-AFTRA health insurance, which the cutoff is like 26,000 a year, I think, right? 26,000 a year. Yeah. Yep. So most of those people, if they're living in LA, have another job because you can't afford to live in LA on $26,000 a year, let alone less than that, right? Um, that's not possible. It's a very expensive city. Um, so you have people who are doing all of these jobs. I've talked to Uber drivers, um, delivery careers in this country, like people in all sorts of parts of the gig economy who have other full-time jobs in these labors of love. Some of them, by the way, also teachers, a lot of Uber drivers in new Orleans, which is where I live when I'm in the U S are teachers, which depresses the crap out of me. Wow. They destroy the public schools in new Orleans. And now the teachers have to be Uber drivers in order to survive. Joy, right? That's uh, wild. So, right. So you either have to be rich or you have to be doing three jobs. Um, and that's where you get these strikes from. And and you know, the studios will say, like, oh, it's Margot Robbie and, and Killian Murphy, but it's like, no, it's not. It's somebody who made ten thousand dollars last year scraping together tiny roles in whatever kinds of things they're scraping together tiny roles in, and is mostly paying their bills doing TaskRabbit and Uber and all the rest Mm. of these things, right? That you can sort of cobble together a living on if you're lucky. You know, I want to talk a little bit about something that you talk about in your book, because you have a whole (laughs) chapter on the arts and sort of just the traditional, you know, way back when, when you had a patron uh, and then there was a transition into the the broad commercialization of art and and how that also changed artists relationship to that can you can you tell me a little bit about that because i think there is a real foundation for what we're talking about when we talk about the writer strike and the actor strike today 
Yeah. So I hang work won't love you back. It's sort of written in two halves. Um, and I basically making an argument that like the narrative of the labor of love that we have now is based in two things. One of which is the unpaid work done in the home, mostly by women, which of course we heard a lot about this during the pandemic when suddenly everybody was stuck at home. Um, and the second half is about the arts um, and the narrative that you get to be, you have to be a sort of special, magical, unique genius to do creative work. Um, that this is this sort of thing that is, it's not just like a human characteristic, which I would argue it's a human characteristic, but the story we're told is that it's, it requires a sort of special kind of person to do art. Um, and you were, if you were an artist, you were like different than the rest of the world. Um, but we see that applied to everything from, you know, still fine artists to filmmakers, actors, to people like computer programmers. Yeah, the, the, no, like the, the justification for these, you know, tech overlords being just filthy, filthy rich, right? Um, is that there are some special, magical, unique geniuses, even though Elon Musk has never invented anything in his life. He's just bought other people's inventions and ruined them um, and makes up things he says he's going to be able to do, which he cannot do, um, which is relevant when we're going to talk about AI um, because AI, spoiler alert, can't do all the things that all these people are saying it's going to do. You know, the only way it's going to bring about the end of the world is by continuing to set the planet on fire because it takes so much computing power to fake a paragraph of text through a large language model. But anyway, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> we'll get to that. About, but when we think about the history of art, right, it goes way, way back. And it is something that a lot of people, me included, would say that is, is sort of a fundamental human need and desire, right? We want to create things, express mm -hmm. ourselves. This kind of idea that like art is a thing that people do to entertain each other make people, you know, that you would play music so that you could all dance together and things like that, then it becomes a commodity. So then you go from being everybody can make art to certain people make art and they sell it or they get commissioned to make art, right? So you, you know, you see all these paintings by these historic masters that are portraits of the royal family. And it's like, they didn't just decide that Marie Antoinette was really pretty. They got paid a lot of money to paint Marie Antoinette, mm -hmm. right? That they did it because it was work, because it was a gig. Um, right. Somebody would say, all right, I want you to draw, a, paint a portrait of my wife and we'll pay you to do that. And maybe that once again, pays for you to make the art that you're really sort of called to make. And maybe those are the masterpieces mm -hmm. that are in the museum now. And maybe the masterpieces that are in the museum right now are still just a form of wage labor. But this idea, right? And this, this commodification of the art. And when you're making a Hollywood film, because of, you know, nearly a century of labor struggle, you have that long trailer at the end of the film, or not trailer at the end of the film, the end, end credits, right? The credits. Yeah. Every little person who worked on that film. And that exists because the union said, hey, we want credit. But like if you walk into, um, so I used to live in the Hudson Valley across the river from Beacon and at Dia Beacon, there are these giant Richard Serra sculptures, the torqued ellipses, and they're really cool, right? Um, but they're giant pieces of like industrial steel that have been bent into a thing. And I always like them, first of all, because they're cool and you sort of wander through them and they're just really interesting. But also because on the wall there, there's actually sort of a laminated card that tells you how they were made which is so rare in the art world, in the sort of fine art world that you don't go in and it doesn't say that like this painting that is attributed to Kinda Wiley was actually mostly painted by his assistants and he comes in and puts the finishing touches on it. Mm -hmm. um, 
that Jeff Koons has a studio somewhere with a bunch of young, you know, 20 year olds mixing his paints and doing things for him. Um, you know, when I was working on that chapter, I talked to OK Fox and Lucia Love from the Art and Labor podcast. And Lucia was like, look, I have pieces in like major museums, but they don't have my name on them. They have the artist's name on them. And there is no sort of credit. Which is something I had no idea about yeah. until I read no, that I, book. I didn't know until I started poking at it. Like there is um, one of the pieces that I cite in the thing was a, a profile of Kara Walker um, in and around making the Sugar Sphinx. And it's like, again, when something like the Sugar Sphinx is so huge, you obviously know that Kara Walker didn't do that all with her own two hands. Right. We know that intellectually when you walk in there. But like her name is the one on the wall not the people who did the thing according to her specifications, did the engineering to figure out how it was gonna fit in the building, all of that stuff. None of those people's names are on the wall, right? But like in this profile of her, there's like one brief mention of her assistant sort of walking through her gallery, kind of like ghosts. And it's like, right, like these fine artists, in some cases, they're like really capitalists, right? Like Jeff Koons literally calls his place the factory and his union busted horrifically several times, um, right? In other cases, they're small business people. They hire somebody to do some work for them here and there. Um, and in some cases they're doing it all themselves. But if you walk into the art museum, you have no idea the difference. Whereas if you watch a film, you see everyone listed. You know that this is a right. massive undertaking of thousands of people maybe. And that mystification is sort of what AI is doing, right? Because like, if you turn an AI loose on my writing and say, write an article in the style of Sarah Jaffe, what it's gonna do is just read everything I've already written and predictive text, what's the word is, that she's likely to put in next? So, you know, it's like those word right. clouds that we used to use. You could, you know, turn the word cloud use, loose on your tweets. But what it can't do is predict what I'm gonna do next. So when you asked what I'm writing about now, and I said, I'm writing a book about grief, the AI is probably not, if you tell it to write something in the style of Sarah Jaffe, going to write what I'm writing right now because it doesn't know because I haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. So it's just using, as Molly Crabapple's written beautifully about this, right? It's just dead labor in like the really obvious way that Marx described it. It's just literally reprocessing work that I've already done. It cannot actually create something new. It can just sort of mystify the production of what it's doing. It can rip you off. It can't actually have this conversation that we're having, you know? Right. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the mystification, and I definitely want to get back to the AI piece of this, but, you know, let's go back to the idea of the, the mystification of the arts, right. because I think something that I encounter when I've been covering the writer strike and the actor strike <laughs> is this idea, right? And I've, I've talked about this before with other people we've had on the pod, but it's like the, the intersection of art and commerce it's almost like such a luxury compared to other professions where you get to do this thing that you love and also potentially make money for it. So shouldn't you just be happy to be there, you know, and, and happy, happy, be just be happy right. and, you know, be grateful to be here and to right. do the thing that you're doing. Right. Um, so, you know, there's this obvious starving artist trope, right? Where it's just right. like, you know, you're, you're starving because this is a labor of love. You know, I think the thing that I encounter is like, well, you know, why, why would they ask for more when they get to do this thing they love? Right. And I think the thing about that is like, okay, who gets to do the thing they love? How do you get mm -hmm. to do the thing you love? How do you have time to make art? If you are a 35 year old mother of two who has to pay the bills to live in Los Angeles, 
how and when do you have time to do anything other than constant wage labor and take care of your kids? Right? right. Who gets it, it limits who gets right. to do the thing that they right. it limits entry into it in the first place, right? Um, you know, for years when I was working in restaurants, I didn't have time to write much. I would get up some mornings and write something first thing in the morning. But mostly I worked and then I was exhausted and I would have a drink or two after the end at the end of my you know shift at 11 o'clock at night. And then I would go home and crash and get up for my second job in the morning. And I didn't have kids to feed um, or take care of that also take up a ton of your time. Right. So like just the ability to make things requires money. It requires time. So who gets to do that? There is a reason that like, you know, the first woman director to win an Oscar was the daughter of a famous director, right? When we're talking about Sofia Coppola, right? How did Sofia Coppola get to be Sofia Coppola? Well, her dad is Francis Ford. That's how. And no shade on Sofia Coppola. I love her movies. But like, how did she get to be that person? Well, I don't have that chance. My dad just owned restaurants. Um, And I'm middle class, right? I'm not like scraping by. But still, I still got out of college with debt. I still had to work two jobs while I was trying to figure out what I was doing, trying to get a job in the immediate post 9-11 recession. I didn't have time to make art. So I make more money and came from more money than most people in the US. And that's not saying much. So how are you doing the thing that you love? One of the things that I really enjoyed learning about the art chapter was like in many ways the most fun for me to write because I knew the least about it. And so I was just like diving down rabbit holes and asking everybody I knew who worked in art to talk to me or to recommend books. Um, So I read this wonderful book called For the Millions, and I'm forgetting the name of the author, but it was about the arts programs in the WPA, so the um, New Deal program, right? And the thing I was so stuck on was not only like everybody sort of knows, right, that the WPA paid for people to paint murals and make films and take photographs, but they also paid for public art centers so that people could go make art. Because like that doesn't exist. Where do you go make right. art, you know, even if you have the time? Like this right. stuff is so inaccessible. My high school didn't have a film production department. How would I learn? How to because do that. that's seen as you know? a luxury, right? And, exactly. You know, and when we talk about and and also, you know, when we talk about making things, I think there's also this idea that it's a high risk thing. Um, you know, right. as the angler himself, Richard Rushfield, always says, like <laughs> Hollywood is a business of hits. It's a business yeah. of hits, and exactly. you know, and those hits, you know, in a studio system, all of those big hits which wind up making money right. are few and far between compared to the whatever, 80, 90% of projects that aren't hits. Doesn't mean they're not good. It doesn't mean they're not artistically (laughs) valuable, but they're not generating the kind of revenue and profits that those hits do. Um, But because it's such a high risk industry, I think there's also the idea that the artist also takes on that risk individually, right? Right. So like why, and, and I think that plays into the idea too of like, why would you be asking for more, like you knew this was a high risk industry. I mean, what do you? Yeah, but again, of, that, it, of having it's funny because there's there's sort of two sides to that story, right? One is like, and especially this yeah. is the line they tell women, right? Is that you don't you need to ask for more, and women don't get raises, and we don't get equal pay because we don't ask for it. But then when you ask for it, it's like, how dare you? And I have had this mm. experience personally, right? Um, how dare you ask for more? You should be grateful just to be here. Right. So Brett Ratner to talk about somebody who makes a lot of money, some hits, and 
mediocre films at best, um, he doesn't roll into a meeting with somebody and say, oh, I'm grateful just to be here. He says, give me however many million dollar budget. I don't even know how much a blockbuster budget is these days, right? But he doesn't come in like humble and like, oh, I'm just really happy to be here. No, these guys walked in swaggering. Even if the last five films they made have been mediocre and gone over budget, right? So again, like who gets to do that? It's so interesting to me because like I've spent a lot of time in England and Ireland and like it is not surprising to me that a lot of our best actors are English and Irish. I'm thinking of Killian Murphy because I'm thinking of who's in the recent blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Irish guy from Cork playing a Jewish guy from the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, I forget which one, um, making the nuclear bomb because these are countries that actually invest in the arts to a degree that like is just non-existent in the U.S., it is absolutely just impossible unless you have money or are willing to just like drag yourself through hell to actually succeed in the arts in the U.S. Um, there's no public support for it at all. Which takes us to a whole larger conversation and a larger problem beyond the studio system, beyond Hollywood. Right. So who gets to be the star? Right. Who gets in the door in the first place? Um, And that has nothing to do with how talented they are. Right. Nothing. Zero. Absolutely nothing. Um, It is purely about access. It is purely about access piled on access, piled on access. Right. So, okay. So you come from a middle class family and you get into NYU and you go to the film studies department at Tisch and you graduate and they have connections. So you get to make some connections. I had a friend for a while who was sleeping on my couch in New York because he couldn't afford to get an apartment in New York, um, but he was trying to work as a PA and trying to break into film, right? So he would come up and sleep on my couch when he had these gigs because they didn't pay him a thing. And somehow that's legal. And, you know, it's me. So I'm like, how is this legal? How are they getting away with this? But yeah, and I was like, sure, man, like come sleep on my couch. And at some point he moved to LA finally. um, And now he's in Florida because he's given up on the stupid industry. And he's good, but like, he didn't go to NYU. He went to Temple University. Um, and that's not fancy enough to get you in all those doors. So you just got to scramble and you got to sleep on somebody's couch. And if you didn't have my couch to sleep on, I don't know where he would have slept. That's the labor of love, right? Is, is Matt sleeping on my couch and doing grunt work on a film for free? But when we talk about the mythology of the artist, right? Like that's also mm-hmm. part of so many people's stories that I think we almost come to expect it and it's you're supposed to go through that (laughs) most people aren't getting by most people are struggling most people are making less than 15 dollars an hour and can't pay the rent um and when if biden starts up student loan payments again then you know how many people who have been managing to get by for the last few years are now going to be screwed again because they've got to choose between paying the heating bill and paying the student debt like most people are not anywhere close to this. Most actors in SAG who are still not most people, right? Most people who want to be an actor will never even get a SAG card. Mm -hmm. And most people in SAG will never get a speaking role. And most people who get a speaking role will never get a starring role. And most people get a starring role will never be Margot Robbie. And most of us don't look like Margot Robbie, which is like fine. Um, (laughs) I've come to terms with that one. All right, guys. Um, I don't look like Barbie. It's fine. Um, But but the rest of it is predicated on like this meritocracy, right? Right. This idea that like you can start off as as nothing and get to that. And it's like you can find the one person whose story is that and point to that guy forever. But most of the stories that I can think of off the top of my head 
are not that in the least. They are not hustlers who scrambled their way up. They are the daughters and sons of the rich. Um, and it's even harder when you're a woman and it's even, even harder when you're not white, right? Um, so like, this is why the best director awards are always a bunch of white guys because who gets in and who gets hired? And this is, again, it's the same story in tech as it is everywhere else, right? Um, so Kate Lossie's memoir of her time at Facebook one of the things that she writes about is just, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is just hiring guys who remind him of him. And that's what people mean when it's like you don't fit into the company culture. Um, you hire people you want to get a beer with. The thing about that, right, is that that is how these industries maintain power informally. The reality is that most of the people who are working, who are in the WGA and in SAG are not making very much money at all. And they very much need to make more. We're Let's talk about the studio money. systems for a moment, because yeah. I mean, I, I do think there is this villainization of when we talk about like the studios as an abstract concept. I yeah, mean, no, but course. it's not that, like the studio is an evil institution any more than any other institution in capitalism is an evil institution. It's mm -hmm. just that it's designed to make money and accumulate it at the top because that's how the system works. It's not that these guys are uniquely terrible people. Jeff Bezos isn't even a uniquely terrible person. He's easy to hate, but like, this is how the thing is designed. It is designed mm -hmm. to siphon money upwards. It will keep doing that absent workers making enough hell to change the distribution. So that's just what it's designed to do. It's not like these guys, I don't know any of their names. I don't know any of their faces. I just know that they pretty much universally come from money and that is how they manage to make more of it, right? That this is, these are fundamentally, I mean, when we talk about it being a business of hits, right? It's a business of making money. It's not a business of making great art. Sometimes you can do both. Sometimes you make, I don't know, what's the last movie that I saw it was great. It was everything, everywhere, all at once, right? Loved that movie. Wonderful movie. But most, mostly what gets put out there is Marvel movies. And why is that? Because Marvel movies make money. Because people come see the next one and the next one and the next one. Um, that they will predictably bank. And look, I have friends who write comics for a living and who have sold some of their comics for film and TV. And I begrudge them absolutely nothing. I like a Marvel movie as much as the next girl. Probably more than a lot of people. Um, but... These are not being made because it, it's like the painting of the cow. Mm -hmm. It's not being made actually because it's what you and me and, and the five people who just walked by out the door want to see. It's being made because this is what a set of people who make these decisions think the public wants to make. And there is a predictable formula for it that says if we do this and we have this many stars in it and we have this name brand director on it, um, then it will make money. And that's what the system exists to do. It's not any more evil than the system of making cars. That's just, it just exists to make money. And we should understand that that's how it exists. And so it's not like the studio heads are personally mad at Fran Drescher. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like they've decided we're just gonna squash these like hopeful kids who move here to try to be actors. No, but it's to their advantage to give those workers as little rights as any, as you know, possible to give them as little opportunity to move upward as possible. And it's just like to associate it even with like greed is often to like be too personal about it. You know, it's a system that is designed to make money. It's not a system that's designed to make most people happy. That's just been true of capitalism since it it's founding. And, you know, let's go back to the 
AI part of this conversation too, when we're talking about technology. And I mean, you talk early on in in the introduction, introductory chapter of your book about the 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 Fordist compromise. Is that what the uh, mm-hmm. the, the term is? I yeah. mean, you, you know, and, and the assembly line. Tell me a little bit about that and sort of how it relates to commercialized art as we see it now. <laughs> yeah. So the assembly line, right, is is sort of the um, peak innovation of industrial capitalism, right? Right. Um, and what it does, what it's designed to do, speaking of all of these things, right, it's designed to to break down the process of building a car, say, into easily repeatable um, and mostly kind of low skill tasks. So what you're going to do is the same thing 100 times a minute, right? If the cars are going or 100 times an hour, right? So you're screwing on the door bolt, you're, you know, installing the seat, whatever it is. You just do that to every car that comes by. So it was developed to make the process go faster and it was developed to make the workers kind of interchangeable. It doesn't take that much training to teach somebody to do the same one thing every single day, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to teaching them to make a whole car. And it's designed to be sort of perfectible and speed upable. And workers have spent most of the time of that history fighting against the speed up of that work and the making of that work sort of more and more miserable as it goes. But it was always designed to kind of be miserable and to increase the power of the boss over the whole thing. So um, you can talk about Frederick Winslow Taylor and all these people who like, you know, did scientific management studies and time and motion studies to see how to make these things the most efficient possible. The process was always about trying to get technology and humans to work together optimally to make the thing as fast as possible and to keep the workers from having too much power to raise too much hell. So instead of one guy who knows how to do all the things, you get one guy who walks off the job and you can replace that guy really relatively easily. So you got to get all the workers to go on strike to make demands because you're the one guy who does the thing, right? You're not, you're not Martin Scorsese. You're one of the hundreds of people in that credits reel. Mm-hmm. Probably replacing. So the assembly line, right? Turns out you can also just pick up the factory and put it somewhere else. Um, and if the workers in that other place are cheap enough, then it's worth it to shut the entire factory down in Ohio or Michigan and move it to Mexico, move it to China, um, where at least for now, the labor laws are more lax and the workers are cheaper, although China at least is, is rapidly catching up. And so what you get there, right, is this point of, well, several points of tension. And so when you think about what AI is doing now, is it's kind of doing the same thing in terms of de-skilling, or it's thinking that we can de-skill writers. You can take away a lot of what it requires to do a news article, say, write about today on the strike. And you can put in AI and say, like, you know, write a news article about what happened today in the negotiations between the studios and the WGA. And, and ostensibly, this right. is supposed to help the individual, the writer, right? Like whether we're talking about it in journalism, whether we're talking about it in TV or screenwriting, like that's what they're selling. The argument, right? well, well, the argument is like, yeah. let's say we're talking about an article, right? Like okay. I used to write earnings reports and those can be very dull affairs. Oh, and yeah. so the idea is, well, wouldn't it be easier if there was something that was just able to pluck? Did they miss or beat on earnings? Did they miss on beat right. on revenue? Right. And then you can go and write right. something more interesting and valuable right. and meaningful to you. Right. That's Except you like probably put those hope. in your reports because they paid well, right? Or paid decent. Well, <laughs> I paid you something. <laughs> paid you something. Um, right. Right. So as it's a journalist. The, but yeah, that's the idea, right? right? That it's right. like you can go and do the other thing you like if we help with the assembly line parts. 
Right. Except now what they're telling us that they're going to do is actually use the AI to write the movie, which is the dream job that all these people had. And, you know, there was a meme going around about like, I didn't think that I was still going to have to be like, you know, screwing the toothpaste lid on the toothpaste and the, the AI was going to be, you know, making paintings and writing poetry, you know. But when you think about it again, if we think about these are businesses to make money, right, the AI tools that are out there on the Internet for us to use for free right now, that again, they take massive amounts of computing power because they're not at all intelligent, what it's doing is throwing just tons more computing power than has gone into like your average Google search. So if I'm, again, if I'm getting on Google and I enter in like what happened today in the negotiations between the WGA and, and the studios, then I get a list of articles and I can tell you where they're all from and I can click on the ones that look like reputable sources and I can avoid the ones that make no sense. The AI is doing that same process that I'm doing. It's just doing it a lot faster because it's got a hell of a lot more computing power. And it's picking things based on an algorithm that we don't understand. So we don't really know what choices it's making and putting those, that information in there. Um, I don't really know if it's using the New York Times as a source or Variety as a source or if it's using some random Joe who has a blog. I don't know if the information it's giving me is in any way accurate. And often, you know, we're finding out that it's not. What I'm just getting is like, the AI says this is accurate. And I'm like, mm, you know. But the technology so part of it aside, right? Like the actual, which, you know, the technology has been moving at a, at a pretty quick clip, which is why it's suddenly come to the forefront of both the writers and the actor strike as an issue where it well, wouldn't have I mean, even a year ago, a maybe. But also a lot of what they're claiming the power to do in this contract, they can't actually do yet. And they're trying to put it in the contract now just in case it ever becomes possible. Right. Right. So this is one of the things, and this is one of the reasons that I think this strike is coming to a head right now is that like, this is a lot of like predictive technology, right? It's like, oh, well, the, the tech bros who are trying to sell us a product, right? Remember, um, you know, Elon Musk also says that he can, you know, mine asteroids. He can't do that yet either. But somebody's investing money in that idea that he might be able to do it someday. And, you know, venture capital out in San Francisco is throwing a lot of money at the idea that AI might be able to write a passable Marvel movie script someday, that it might you might be able to train an AI on like, you know, 500 issues of Marvel comics and have it crank out a film. Cool. They say if maybe they can do that, they want it in the contract now that they can fire you all, that they don't have to pay you, that they don't have to give you residuals on anything that the AI is producing off of your work, um, that any number of things. And again, you know the details of what's being negotiated much better than I do, because I'm certainly not following this on a day-to-day -day basis. But a lot of these demands that are being put forward are being put forward based on what are essentially sales hype. So Elon Musk said he could make a tunnel from what was it, LA to San Francisco or something that'd be like one car long, and it turns out he can't do it. Um, he says he can mine asteroids. He can't do that. Well, you know, OpenAI says it can do X, Y, and Z thing. Well, it turns out that a lot of the people who are actually doing the work of this thing are still sort of very underpaid to talk about outsourcing um, exploited workers in Kenya who are doing the, the work of teaching the AI not to be racist, um, among other things, right? So like, there's still nowhere near what the things that they're saying they can do are. So I think that's the first thing, like, you know, don't trust the things that, you know, people who are making a, a report to a venture capitalist about what they can do with their next, you know, round of funding, um, what they say they can do. But also, right, that doesn't mean that you should, you know, sign it away in a contract just in case it becomes possible to do it. And so that these sort of things are dovetailing, right, with this desire to sort of control 
the process and again, to make more money and to have to pay out less money. So when you think about what streaming has done to residuals, this is another example of like the union's not really getting ahead of the technology and realizing that this was going to be right, which is the parallel concern of streaming back in the 2007, 2008 writer strike and AI now. Exactly. Exactly. Except I think that uh, AI is less likely to do a lot of what it says it's going to do. Um, and it is also setting the planet on fire. Um, but right at this particular moment in the hype cycle, it's worth having this fight right now because what they actually want to do with it is they want to use the threat of it to make you sit down and be grateful for that job. To say, I didn't have to have a person write this. I could have just had the AI do it. Or to turn the job from writing a script into here's the script that we fed into the AI and now we need you to human it up a little bit. We need you to fact check it. We need you to make sure that it's not completely ripping off another movie that somebody made 10 years ago. Um, It's going to fragment the work further. So you don't get to be the person who wrote the screenplay that gets your name on the screen. You get to be one of 10 people who's doing a piece of making the AI script into something that's halfway decent. I think the thing that comes up too, right, is if you talk to folks on the studio side, there are obviously you know, the rank and file studio executives and studio staffers, there are a lot of people who believe in the artistic value of what the artists and the writers are contributing to. As a whole, holistically, the system is designed to make money. Right. A studio wouldn't be worth its salt if it wasn't. But on an individual level, you have so many people who do and say they do believe in the art and the creative value of what they do. And so I also feel like there's this there's this tension there, right? Because, you know, you have folks in in you know, on the studio side, on the in, in bad production companies everywhere, who you know believe in the the creative value and 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 believe in that work, but also the system holistically is designed to make money. So it's right. like I don't know. Yeah, well, it's it's you don't if you are the one guy who says, "All right, we're going to pay everybody a living wage, and we're going to give the union whatever they want, and we're going to every movie that we make is going to be made, and everybody's going to be making you know whatever it is. I don't know." and all the rest of the studios aren't doing that, then who's making more money, right? And you're going to run out of business. And so these are the challenges. And this is why the studios negotiate together, right? It's not like you're doing a deal with different different individual people, right? It's, it's you are collectively sort of setting the standard for the industry because if you don't, then you're all going head to head. And then there's competition between studios. And this one's going to say, oh, well, we're going to win on making good movies, right? This was the argument of like Miramax back in the day, right? Was that, oh, what we're doing is we're small and we're independent and we're making really good movies. And we're going to make a ton of money by like spending very little money on a Pulp Fiction. And oh my God, that's going to make a ton of money. When you actually think about like the possibility of that over the long term, like it didn't work out that way, right? They they had a couple of uh, very low budget hits, and then they became basically another major studio, right? It doesn't it doesn't work to not be part of the structure. You can't sort of opt out of the system in that way. This is what like I say this to people who are employers in nonprofits, right? I wrote an article about the nonprofit sector in the book. And because I'm, you know, I'm of an age now where like some of my friends are bosses now and they will complain to me about their employees. And I'm like, listen, I'm never going to side with you against your employees, but I'm going to say to you that the best thing you can do in that situation actually is don't fight their unionization, sit down at the negotiating table and argue for your interests and, and negotiate like honestly, because 
there's no sort of pretending that you're not the boss. Mm. You can't like be the nice guy in that situation. Um, you can be the guy who's, you know, the one in the meetings that I imagine that they're all having right now who says like, okay, maybe we should give in on this thing. And, you know, that there are probably all sorts of arguments happening within the people who are doing the negotiating on the studio side, right? About like, what can we give in on here? What am I going to, whatever, somebody's a holdout on this thing. Somebody's a holdout on that thing, right? That like within that space that we don't really get to see, there are arguments happening too. And I'm sure there are people that we would think of as good guys and people that we would think of as bad guys. And I, again, use the word guys advisedly here in that space, that there are people who are making arguments for like, guys, we just need to end the strike and get back to work, give them whatever they want. Let's stop fighting on this thing and like do it. And then somebody else saying, absolutely not. And by the way, we should break them entirely. You know, and in that room, there's a diversity of opinions, but when they go to the bargaining table, they're going to the bargaining table as a group. They're going to the bargaining table as the representative of sort of the studio system, right? Because that's how the structure works. The same way that like the United Auto Workers are bargaining with like the big three auto companies right now. Um, And within that space, within the leadership and the executives of those auto companies, there are, again, probably a range of opinions. But to actually win, which they want to do, right? Because they want to maintain their overall power. You come to the bargaining table poker face and say, no, we're not going to give you that. And you don't know, because if they start showing the cracks and people start figuring out who it is that wants to give in, then that's leverage. Anyway, I'm not a union negotiator because I have a shitty poker face. (laughs) And, you know, I think the thing that I I just, again, like going back to this idea, right, and I'm not articulating this very well because I'm working out of New York right now and operating. (laughs) But, um, you, you know, again, it's just like it's I find that the conversation when we talk about labor in Hollywood versus other industries, right, is because of this unique tension between creativity and and the commercialization of Mm -hmm. that creativity and so it's sort of like yeah we all want to make the best art we can but also we really need this art to make money but we do want to give you creative freedom but that creative freedom needs to pay off in some way um, or ideally pay off in some way and it's like yes like most of those will not be big money making hits but like we are banking on some of those eventually doing so and so like i i just i find the conversation around that like both on a rank and file level like when you're talking to the artists themselves and then when you're talking to like rank and file studio executives it's i don't know it's almost couched in that creativity right of like no Mm -hmm. like we're talking about art but 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 really we're talking about money um, and so and it's like, I feel like both of those sides come from different places in it. Sorry, but you were going to say. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it's that's the mystification of it, right? That like, we want to pretend that there's not a labor process involved in this, but there is. And we want to pretend that like, we're all in this business because we love the films. And if we weren't, then we would be working in finance instead or something like that, right? <laughs> Um, it's, it just happens at like the video game companies too, right? The video game companies, when I was writing about that, right? The game studios are all, oh, we want to make great art. The games are going to be great art. But also Red Dead Redemption has to sell however many copies and it's got to ship on time, even if you are working right. 100 hour weeks before it ships, right? And these these things are sort of built on blockbusters and there's a long tail. And like, this is true of publishing, right? When you were talking about this, um, I was thinking of book sales, right? And so I'm like a moderately, I'm a mid-level author, we'll say, Right. I'm not a bestseller, but I've sold enough copies and my book's coming out in five, six languages. So like, I do all right. 
I made more money on the next, I got a bigger advance on the next book than I did on the last one. I got a bigger advance on the last one than I did on the one before that. Um, and hopefully this new one will sell even more. But I am unlikely to ever sell JK Rowling numbers of books. But it's okay because they don't have to pay me a ton of money to write a book. You know what I mean? Mm. And so with that, because it's a, a sort of very individualized process, like, you know, some authors who make more money than me hire assistants, I pay for things like transcription services. Um, and we'll pay like an indexer. There are obviously editors who are staff at my publishing house. Um, although a lot of writers that I know are now hiring their own editors because the in-house publishing is scrimping on that too. Um, oh man, that's, but you know, so my first book I sold for $15,000 with an added bonus. If I earned out my advance in the first year, so that's not a lot of money, right. For a big publishing house to give me $15,000 and take a gamble that Sarah is a reasonably good writer. We think she'll, we think she'll actually write the book. We think we'll actually be able to put it out on time. And we think some people will buy it. And again, I earned out my advance in the first royalty season. So the first half year, actually. Um, so that was a good bet for them, right? But if they lost on that bet, it's not going to break them. Right. If the studio makes the Avengers volume, whatever the hell, and they spend however many million dollars on that and nobody goes to see it, it's a different bet. And so even if we're not talking about the Avengers, even if we're talking about... Um, God, I'm like blanking on a like non-costume drama. Like, uh, did you see Barbie? <laughs> I saw Barbie, but that that even has like a lot of production, whatever going on in it, right? I am thinking mm-hmm. like, what was that movie about the marriage or whatever? It was mostly Adam Driver and, and Scarlett Johansson yelling at each other. Marriage story? Right, yeah, something like that, right? Where it's mostly yeah. a small set and you don't have to go that far and they're wearing sort of modern clothing uh, yeah. and it's mostly based on two actors yelling at each other. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't actually see it, I'm sorry. I have I <laughs> about seeing movies like, but like something like that, right? But like, even if you make that, um, you're banking it on everybody wanting to see Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson yell at each other, which I do. It's actually surprising. I haven't seen it. Um, right. That's, that's a different gamble than like the amount of money you need to spend on making an Avengers movie. Yeah. But it's still expensive. It's still hundreds of people, even to make like the smallest independent film. Like you're still working on like talking about like dozens of people. It's just a much bigger gamble to make a movie. And that just like, it makes the calculations of the thing different. It makes how much money it has to make back different, right? Right, right. You write a book, you know, the publisher will decide how many copies to put out based on how much they think it's going to sell. So they don't waste a ton of money and they can go to another printing fairly quickly. Um, So both of my books have gone to like second and third printings in fairly short order because they sold more than they thought they were going to. Um, and that's a thing you can do. So you don't actually spend a lot on sort of raw materials or anything like that. Now, ebooks and audiobooks are a bigger cut of that. So you're not printing anything. Um, you're just sending a digital file out into the world. It's just a much smaller gamble for a publishing house to be like, oh, sure, write a book. And for that book to sell 7,000 copies is like, fine. That's good for a lot of publishers and a lot of authors. And you just don't have the same like economies of scale, right? When we're talking about film. So it's right. It is, it is big business. It is very, very big business. And the thing, and the reason that we have those mountainous credit sequences is to say that like, A, it is a big business and B like that everybody who worked on that matters and they don't just want their name in lights. They actually need to pay the bills. Well, you've given all of Mm -hmm. us a lot to chew on. 
Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. This is great. I mean, like I cover the strikes in like very granular day to day detail, and it's really nice to sort of think about it holistically mm-hmm. and to think about the whole system holistically and what it all means, you know, when we're looking at all these moving parts. So, so thank you again, uh, and everyone. It, it the book is "Work Won't Love You Back." It is a great read. It covers many different professions, including again the arts. So, thanks for your time, Sarah. Thank you.